Good afternoon. Welcome to Hudson Institute. Um, my name is sorry. My name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here at Hudson, um, and we have a very special, a very special event um, with uh, with George Deke. Usually we have we have panels up here, uh, two or three other people, and I usually moderate a uh, an argument of some sort. Uh, but today I'm just going to be throwing questions at George for uh, for about an hour or so, and then I'll open it up and see if we have any questions. It's going to be, uh, as you see, the, the title of the event, What Does the Latest Wave of Violence in Israel Portend? And that will be part of what we'll discuss, but it's going to be a fairly wide-ranging <coughs> conversation, which will include about everything aside from baseball, which George, as a visitor here, does not understand, so the World Series is, just enti started, is, no? is entirely lost on him. So, um, But we're going to be discussing, um, George, is, George is an Israeli diplomat. George comes from... Uh, comes from a, a well-known, famous um, Greek Orthodox family in Jaffa, and uh, George joined the uh, the uh, Foreign Service in Israel in seven years ago. Seven years ago, yeah. he served in uh, Nigeria, Norway, and right now he is a um, he's a Fulbright scholar at Georgetown University. George is also a lawyer. Got his degree <coughs> at uh, at Herzliya. Is that correct? That's IDC. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and he's getting, uh, he's getting um, uh, another law degree now at Georgetown. Um, and so we're going to talk a little about the situation in Israel, and I think that George is uh, uniquely placed to discuss this and give us a very interesting insight on this. We're also going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about some about George's experiences as an Israeli diplomat, and in particular his, um, his particular view on this coming from coming from an Arab family, what that is like to represent, what that is like to represent um, Israel. And we'll also talk about some of the places where he has served, and we'll talk a little about his experience here in the United States, particularly at Georgetown University. Um, so, um, again, welcome. It's going to be a very, uh, very special afternoon. And George, thank you so much for joining us. With I hope pleasure. this is the first of many times you come to visit us at Hudson. Inshallah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so let me ask, if you can... If you can just give us some sort of general insight, and then we'll we'll go back and forth a bit, then we can narrow down a little bit. If you can describe what what you think is happening right now yeah. in Israel. Well, thank you, Lee, and thank you to the Hudson Institute for uh, having me here today. And uh, I'm glad you realized that as an Israeli, I can sit alone and have three or four opinions by myself, <laughs> so I can <laughs> argue with myself. Exactly, we on have this. a huge panel here. Exactly. That turns out. Yeah. Yes, all right. Um, I think what we're seeing now in the uh, Middle East, uh, or particularly in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is an interesting time where uh, a story is being rewritten or at least being challenged. In a way, it is the swan song of the, uh, of the way the conflict has been going between Israelis and Palestinians for the last 70 years, in, in the sense that until today, I mean, when we look at reality, the reason where we don't have peace today, 20 years after the Oslo Accords and 70, 67 years after Israel was established, is for many reasons. Uh, one of them is uh, the lack of recognition by both sides of the rights of the other, uh, the issue of uh, territories and the issue of uh, Arab world interfering in our affairs, etc. But I think one of the most important reasons that uh, is being ignored or overlooked by both many Israelis and many Palestinians and definitely in general uh, worldwide 
is the fact that we see the conflict in different perspectives. For Israelis, the uh, conflict, and for the world, the conflict is, um, is a conflict between two national movements. The uh, Jewish uh, Zionist movement as a national movement of the Jewish people, and the Palestinian movement as the national movement of the Palestinian uh, people embodied in the PLO and later PLO plus Hamas, uh, you could say. However, from the, uh, and therefore because it's a two national movements, then there is a room for negotiation and compromise because we both want different things or the same thing, but we want to achieve it in different ways. So we can compromise, each of us get something and we're both happy. From the Palestinian perspective, the conflict is not so much seen as two national movements that are competing uh, for the territory, but rather one national movement, the Palestinian Arab national movement, as part of the larger Arab national movement, versus a, an entity that is not so much a national movement, but rather a foreign colonial body. This is the reason, for example, why you would not see Israel until today in the maps of any of the schools in the Arab world, mm -hmm. including in the Palestinian territories. I'm not talking about 67 and the, uh, the West Bank, but any kind of Israel in any size. This is the reason why until today, no Palestinian leader has come out saying that we are willing in certain circumstances to give up the claim of return of refugees to come back to Israeli borders. I think Abbas said lately that uh, this is an individual right of every refugee and therefore he has no right to give it up on their behalf, mm. which is in a way saying I can't solve the conflict. Huh. This is also the reason why um, the uh, Palestinian leadership has refused constantly until today to recognize Israel as the homeland or the, the nation state of the Jewish people. Uh, they are, if you look at the nuance, people don't always look at the nuance. Uh, Israelis speak about two states for two peoples, meaning the Palestinian people and the Jewish people. The Palestinians talk about two states, not for two people, just two states. And the mm -hmm. reason is because saying two states for two people would mean recognition of the right of another people wow. to have native people's right over the same land that we believe is completely ours. And I think this narrative has been, um, has been fueling a lot of the frustration that we see. And of course, what we're seeing today in the last few weeks with the, uh, the violence that has been taking place, uh, stabbing Israelis, etc., a lot of people are trying to explain why it's happening. Uh, those who uh, are more sympathetic to the uh, Palestinian cause will say it's fr frustration over the conflict, the occupation, etc., which in a way has some grounds. But at the same time, if you listen to what the people themselves, the, 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 uh, the people stabbing or their families are saying, then they kind of contradict that theory because they speak about a larger theory of uh, uh, that they're, they're doing what they're doing in the name of either Islam or in the name of greater Palestine as a political ambition. Uh, if you are more sympathetic to the Israeli side, um, you would probably say this is just fanaticism uh, because they are Islamic uh, fanatics or because they just hate Israel, they don't want Israel to exist. Now, even if that as well has some grounds, there is a sort of fanaticism, uh, 
it still doesn't explain why it's happening now. Why at this moment? I mean, the fact that Palestinian leaders have been inciting against Israelis or the Islamic movement in <coughs> Israel or Hamas saying that Israel is trying to destroy the temple or to uh, change the status quo or mm -hmm. take over the Temple Mount, uh, this is not new. This is not something that started mm -hmm. two or three weeks ago. It, st it started uh, back in 1928 uh, when... Mm -hmm. uh, the Muslim leaders of Jerusalem warned that uh, the Jews are planning to take over the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Was that the, the first Mount? time it happened? That, that was uh, that was Hajimin? Yeah, it was him. Hip, that was, so that was the first time that this happened? As far as I can recall, okay. that was the first time that uh, there was such claim. And by the way, it's 1928, mm -hmm. long before there was an occupation, long before there was a right. state called Israel. And the result of it was that in the next summer, 133 Jews were slaughtered in Jerusalem just because that uh, incitement was happening. So this is not some, a new claim and it's been going on in the, if you follow the news in Israel or in the Palestinian territories, you would see that this kind of incitement has been going on for a lot of years. So why is it happening now? Frankly, I don't have an answer. Nobody <laughs> has. Uh, it's a little bit of everything, but I do think the uh, meaning of it, and please cut me if I'm speaking. Uh, no, no, no. I do think the, uh, the meaning of it is that what we're seeing is, is a sort of uh, frustration and confusion because until now, Israel has been perceived, since it is a colonial movement, a foreign body that someday, just like the Brits and the Ottomans and all everyone else would just be thrown out, just needs patience and patience, this theory has been frustrated. They tried, uh, the Arab world tried mm -hmm. in three wars to, uh, to, to put Israel in a military crisis, 48, 67, 73, and they failed. In the 70s, they tried to put Israel in an economic crisis through the Arab boycott, mm -hmm. and they failed. In the notorious Durban resolution equating Zionism with racism, they tried to put Israel in a diplomatic price, uh, crisis, mm -hmm. and they failed. And today, we see... Uh, the attempt to put Israel in a moral crisis through movements such as the BDS, such as the, um, mm. uh, the discourse that we've seen where Israel has no room on the textbooks or the discourse in the Arab world. And that has been failing as well. <coughs> and I think if you look also at the two intifadas that has taken place, the second intifada in particular, I would say, in the year 2000, the... Uh, the perception behind it was that the Jews have an alternative. They have a place to go. They, if we scare them enough, then they will just get up and leave. And you would see that, you know, it's the, the theory of that uh, Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, has been promoting uh, constantly calling Israel, I think it was spider web, spider's, spider's, web, spider's yes. web, where you just can take it off right. if you just wish to. It's just if we hit them hard enough, then they will be forced. Uh, mm -hmm. And I have to say, Israel has done some things to, to, to kind of support that theory um, in Lebanon, in Gaza, that you mean if you hit from, them hard enough, withdrawal they from try, Lebanon yeah, and disengagement. with the withdrawal and the disengagement. But I think while the, the Arab side saw those disengagements from Lebanon and from Gaza as a sign of weakness, here, if we hit them hard enough, they will withdraw, <laughs> it's a misreading of the Israeli uh, politics or the Israeli mindset. The Israelis wish to believe in all their hearts and all their minds that this is a national 
conflict, na conflict between national movements. Therefore, we do not withdraw because we are afraid or we are weak. We withdraw because we are willing to accept the legitimacy of the claims over that land, hoping that by giving it away, we will regain peace or some kind of uh, ability to have normal life in our mm -hmm. country. And both sides were disappointed because the theory of crumbling Israel through violence did not work. And the theory of Israelis of land, giving land will give us more peace has also not worked in both fronts, Gaza and Lebanon. Um, yeah, so today this, what, what I think is most uh, surprising in the, uh, the latest uh, violent wave and I think there is an article by uh, a guy called Chaviv uh, Gur Retting in Times of Israel, which explains it perfectly, is that when you believe so deeply in a certain narrative that we, the Palestinians, are the only national movement around and the others are foreigners, and if you only push <coughs> forward, you will eventually gain your goal, push a little bit more, if you promote more martyrdom and heroism and violence, you will get the big picture that you want. I think people are standing and saying, it's, it's not working. It's, it hasn't achieved the goal. I, uh, the, the biggest picture to illustrate that was in 1990, when Saddam Hussein was firing rockets towards Israel mm -hmm. from the Gulf, in the first Gulf War. And at the same time, it was the same days that Russian Jewry was uh, finally outside the grip of the Soviet Union. And they had, a, they had a choice. They could go to the US or Western countries, or they could go to Israel. Mm. And most of them, almost all of them, decided to come to Israel. And you had two things coming down from the sky <coughs> of Tel Aviv those years. Rockets and airplanes bringing more and more yeah. people. So you would see that not only did the strategy of bombing did not work, but it actually has proven that it doesn't even deter them from more, from more people right. coming to the land. So if it's not working, what can we do? And I think this is exactly why I said at the beginning that what we're seeing is the swan song okay. of a certain narrative of resistance. Because more than the voices supporting the violence, we are seeing a silence. Huh from the Palestinian side about what's happening. Of course, the leadership is paying lip service uh, and, and calling those kids martyrs, uh, hmm. stabbing uh, martyrs and heroes. But even the largest protest in the West Bank was not more than a few hmm. thousand. Hamas, on the one hand, is praising uh, the people, uh, but on the other hand, is afraid of launching rockets from hmm. Gaza. Therefore, his approval rates uh, in the, among the Palestinians have dropped 5% because in the last uh, because they're not survey by... Them. Because they're, they seem as hypocrites. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you're saying, go and fight right. and do whatever you can. On the other hand, you're afraid to launch rockets towards Israel because naturally, they saw what, what war, what kind of destruction uh, it brings and fear it brings to the hearts of people. L l let me ask, yeah. you said you see this as a, something of a swan song. So... In the in the uh, the paper that we talked about about Norway that you sent me, I noticed that you quote uh, you quote Jabotinsky, talking about the Iron Wall. Uh, is that kind of what we're seeing now? 
the Palestinians, in, in a sense, coming up against the Iron Wall. So what happens? And you're talking about the people, you're talking about Russian Jews, nonetheless, still coming to Israel, saying, we're still going to make it, it's going to be fine. So if this is the swan song, what happens next? Because the optimistic reading would be like, okay, now we can finally move on. Yeah. Now we have, we've come to the realization the Israelis aren't going anywhere, so we've got to figure out some way to live with them. Yeah. Does that happen or what happens? Yeah, I certainly agree that there is a room for optimism in this conflict. I'm not sure it will happen, but I'm optimist that the, uh, paradoxically, the despair over the hope of uh, uh, kicking out Israel will bring a new kind of hope. Now, the conflict started in a way that both sides did not accept the legitimacy of the other. If you remember the first narrative of Israel, the Jews who came to Israel before Israel was existed was a people without a land to a land without a people, as if me and my family and the Palestinian people never existed in the land. Um, and that narrative has changed over time. And we st even in the, in the 70s, Golda Meir said, there is no such thing as a Palestinian people. But the Israelis, in a way, hit their own iron wall huh. in the sense that the Palestinians said, no, we are here and we want to be recognized mm -hmm. and we want to achieve certain rights. And that brought the Oslo process where Israelis were willing to say, okay, there are two national movements. Let's negotiate with the other national movement, hoping that we can reach a sort of compromise that will bring us peace. This is exactly the process that should be, begin to happen also now with the, the new developments in the Palestinian side. But in order to reach that, we need to develop what is known as a, a new culture of argument. You look at, uh, we're, we need to kind of move in the Palestinian or the Arab world from a uh, argument for the sake of power to an argument for the sake of truth. And what do I mean by that? Last year, there was a uh, professor called Professor Muhammad Dajani, who was teaching at Al-Quds University, Palestinian professor, he was part of the PLO, and he was teaching in Al-Quds University, and he decided to take his uh, students to Auschwitz to visit the concentration camp in, uh, in Poland. He took them there, and the minute he came back, there was so much criticism mm. over this move that his own um, university denounced him, causing him to resign for just taking mm. the kids to see the suffering of the Jews in Europe. Uh, it's not only a Palestinian phenomena. There is a uh, Egyptian guy called Haysam Hassanin who uh, did his master's degree in Tel Aviv University. And about mm. two months ago, he gave his uh, valedictorian speech where he spoke about what he saw in Israel for the first time. He said, I was taught how horrible and bad people you are. Mm. And here I am and I'm seeing coexistence between Arabs and Jews, ultra-Orthodox and secular, <coughs> etc. And then he went back, or he didn't go back to Egypt, but uh, I think he did go back actually. But the reactions in Egypt were furious. The, uh, one of the leading TV anchors, I forgot his name, launched such a heavy criticism saying that he should be take stripped from his citizenship from Egypt. Now, as long as we can't argue, as long as we can't have different voices in our debate, it is very hard to change yeah. a narrative. No original thought can be possible when uh, exchange of ideas is impossible. No invention could have been made without trial and failure. 
It's like uh, what Einstein uh, said, uh, that if his, he said, if my theory of relativity would be proven <laughs> correct, then the uh, Germans will claim me as German and the French will say I'm a citizen of the world. <laughs> if, however, my theory is proven wrong, the French will say I'm a German <laughs> and the Germans will say I'm a Jew. Uh, in a place where you cannot really try and be wrong, in a place where it's not okay to argue and to have a different opinion, where there's no legitimacy to voice different opinions, there can be no room for accepting people who are different. Uh, if you can't accept opinions that are different than yours, eventually you'll not be able to accept people who are different than you. Okay, um, I, 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 I wanted to, to, wait, to wait a little bit, but now that you're bringing this up, well, I, I'll say that the first time that I heard of George was reading, uh, reading a profile of him in Tablet Magazine, where I also write, and the line that really, the line that really um, stuck out for me was George talking about that it needing to accept the legitimacy of others. You hear a lot of talk uh, in the region, in the Middle East, people talking about accepting other people's humanity. Right? That's, that's not enough. There are differences. People are different, and without accepting differences. And so that really, I, I mean, I was really floored by that. And so I guess I'm going to put you in a little bit of a hard spot and ask you to explain how in your life did you come to that place? How much through your family, how much through your own thinking, how much through your education... How much of your background? I mean, because it's a, it's, it's, it's a fascinating issue, right? I get this question often. I mean, people ask me, <laughs> uh, George, you're an Arab. You come from a Palestinian family. You're a Christian. Why on earth would you care so much about the plight of the Jews or the story of Israel? Why is that so important? Don't you have enough problems of your own to <laughs> deal with in your community? And we do. Trust me, even in Israel, we have a lot of challenges uh, to deal with. Uh, and... I tell them that I care about it because I believe that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are not a Jewish problem. I know it's very hard for a lot of Jews to give up the monopoly over this, <laughs> but the, nothing would be more tragic than to continue seeing this as a Jewish or Israeli problem. If you look at history and you ask, why is it that Jews in Europe or in the Middle East have <coughs> suffered throughout the ages? The answer is because Jews were always different. Throughout the ages, they, they, they may have integrated into their societies, but they refused to assimilate in the sense that they refused to give up their unique uh, culture, faith, language, or identity. And that insistence on remaining different has put Europe facing one of the most important questions of morality. Are we able to tolerate a people that is different? Are we able to live side by side with a nation that insists on the right to be different and on the dignity of being different? And unfortunately, as history has shown us, Jews lived for the right to be different, but they died because of the inability to tolerate that right. Coming to Israel and the Middle mm. East, it's hard not to imagine how our life would have been like if in 1947, instead of rejecting the partition plan of the UN dividing the land to an Arab state and the Jewish state, the Arab world would have said to the Jews, welcome back home. This is your home, but it's also our home. So let's see if we can find a way to live mm. here together. 
it's hard not to try and imagine how our lives would have been like if in 1967, instead of the Khartoum summit, <laughs> where the Arab leaders decided the famous three no's, no to recognition of Israel, no to negotiations with Israel, and no to peace with Israel, what would have happened if they said yes, yes, and yes? What would have happened if Arafat or Abbas would have said yes to any of the uh, peace offers that were provided uh, by <coughs> Israel in the last 20 years? Unfortunately, we have seen uh, that history has developed otherwise. And when I come to ask, why is it that there's so much rejection and hate towards the Jewish state in the Middle East, I'm reminded of the uh, nice quote of uh, Mark Twain, I think, who said, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. When Israel was created, the Arab world had to face the exact same questions that Europe mm. faced. Are we able to live next to a nation that is different? Are we willing to live side by side with a country that is neither Muslim nor Arab? Wars of annihilation, boycott, terrorism, BDS, these are all the manifestation of the fact that the answer was and remains no. So why do I care? Why should I care about this? Because at the end of the day, we are all different. Each person, each culture, and every faith are unique and irreplaceable. And therefore, I think that a Middle East that has no room for Jews is a Middle East that has no room for humanity. Our difference is what makes us human. I care about the story of Israel and I care about the story or the, the success or the acceptance of the Jews in the Middle East because eventually it will affect everyone else who is different <coughs> in the region. Jews were not the only victims of Spain of the Inquisition. Jews were not the only victims of Nazi Germany and today when we see the ethnic strife and religious bloodshed in our region, Christians going from being 20% of the region to mere 4% today. The last church in Afghanistan was destroyed in 2010. Mm. There's no Christians left in the city of Mosul in Iraq where they have lived for 2,000 years. Yazidis are on the verge of extinction. extinction. The Kurds are being pushed back. Anyone who is different is being fought against. And a Middle East that is not able to accept a Jewish state, to accept the, different, the right of the Jews to be different, will not be able to accept the right of anyone in the region to be different. And by that, it will lose not only its variety and diversity moving to uniformity, but it will also lose its humanity. Is this the larger, is this what we're seeing right now? I mean, especially in Syria and Iraq. Is that what this is about? The inability of... I mean, look, there's lots of different ways to phrase it, whether it's a sectarian war, and of course there are lots of national interests at stake as well. But do you think that the underlying fundamental issue is that? I, I think that the uh, fundamental issue is that we don't know in the Arab world what we want. Who do we want to be? Who do we hope to be someday? We're living in time of immense change. It's the entire Westphalian order of nation states in the Middle East is collapsing. We've had a order that lasted for almost 100 years of nation states, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, etc. But this entire order is now collapsing. And times of changes like this create insecurities. And those insecurities are easily translated 
into suspicion and hate. Mobilizing the forces of hate is a very easy thing to do. Uh, this is what uh, uh, Milosevic did in Yugoslavia. This is what happened in Rwanda when the Tutsis were described as Inyezis, cockroaches, before the genocide. This is what happened in Darfur when uh, Sudan unleashed the Janjaweed, uh, devils on horsebacks, to commit the genocide in the people of Darfur. And this is what's happening throughout the region where we see preachers who are mobilizing, using a language of hate, abusing religion to make it a source of hate rather than a source of tolerance and peace into a religion, into making a radical, violent interpretation of that religion into the most vocal and dominant voice of that particular religion. It, it is the struggle of the Middle East today is in the midst of this change, how are we able to switch from a narrative of fear and hate that come with the change, that comes with everything is collapsing, there's no more countries, there's no more governments, what do we do? Instead of that change bringing us to, uh, or it has already brought us to place of fear and hate, how we are able to create a new narrative, to create a new rea reality in which rather than hate and fear, we are able to promote tolerance and acceptance. And the persecution of Christians in our region or any other minority for that sense is a result. We are paying the price for, uh, we as a Christian I say, or as a Jew, mm. we are paying the price for the inability of the Middle East to write a story that is based on compassion rather than a story based on uh, uniformity and rejection. Uh, so this is the main struggle that we have. You, you put it also before talking about, <coughs> talking about in 48, your grandfather left, Yeah. right? And his, one of the things that you said he was able to do was he was able to imagine something else. Yeah, I, I mean, I, can you can you talk? I mean, can you describe? Yes. Can, can you just describe that background, and then we'll. I his, I like the story, story of my grandparents. I never thought of it as something unique until uh, I actually told it, and people told me it's unique. Mm -hmm. But it's it's a story that I think show, that shows how we can make that transition in our in our discourse towards a more peaceful one. In 1948, when uh, Israel was established. Um, the Arab world told all the Palestinians living in, a, in, in Palestine of the time, pack all your things and leave because two things are going to happen. If you stay, the Jews are going to come and they're going to kill you. And if you leave, just give us two, three weeks and we'll just kick out the Jews out of there and you'll be able to come back to your homes. So my family, frightened by what might happen, decided to flee. Uh, unfortunately, my family, or maybe fortunately, my family was one of the poorest families in, in, in the city. Mm. So while everyone else were ab was able to flee by boat to Beirut or to Gaza, mostly from Jaffa, from the city of mm. Jaffa, uh, my family decided to go by foot. My grandparents were not married. They were just mm. engaged at the time. They were young people. Uh, so they, they went together? They went... Yeah, so they brought a priest to my grandparents' house oh. at the same night. My grandmother did not have time to get a wedding oh. dress, let alone invite guests. 
and he wedded my grandparents in the house in haste on that day so the next day they can flee together mm. and the next day he came and they together with all the family they started fleeing towards Lebanon by foot I don't know how many of you tried to go from Tel Aviv to Lebanon <laughs> to the border by car it takes you a few I think five hours let alone think about how long the journey would be by mm. foot but they managed and they crossed the border to Lebanon and they were sitting there in a Palestinian refugee camp alongside all the other Palestinians in the region. And the war, but the war did not end in two weeks as they were <coughs> promised. The war ended after many months. And unlike what they were promised, the Arabs actually lost the war and the Jews won and Israel was established. And to their astonishment, the Jews did not kill all the Arabs as they were promised that would happen. Now, most of my family uh, found a way to build a new future for themselves in other parts of the world. That's why today I have family in uh, Beirut, family in uh, Jordan, in Amman. I even have family in Damascus as we speak, mm -hmm. trapped in the civil war. I have a big family in uh, the US and in Canada and in other mm -hmm. places in the Western world. But my grandfather, wanted to do wanted something else he he was not so much afraid of the jews as the rest were for the simple reason that he lived in a mixed city and he lived with jews and before the war he worked in a company called rutenberg electricity company where he worked alongside jews who even taught him yiddish making him one of the few palestinians at the time who actually speaks yiddish so he was not so much afraid of the jews and when the war was over, he decided that he wants to go back. How do you get back? Nobody gets back. He decided to take the risk. He and my grandmother, his wife Vera, already having a son at the point, my first uncle Sammy, who is an Israeli citizen, but it says on his citizenship, born, born in, in Lebanon. Ah. And they decided to, to smuggle uh, back to Israel, making them uh, undocumented uh, migrants uh, to Israel. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course there was no fence, no border at the time, the war just uh, ended, there were even still pockets of fighting. So they crossed the border and they came back to Israel and they were able to sneak until at some point in the Galilee they found themselves in the middle of a crossfire between Israeli and Arab forces, probably Syrian from what we understand today. Uh, because even after the war, there were still some pockets where fire was being exchanged. So they found a way to hide either behind a big rock or in a cave. We're not really sure what exactly it was. And they stayed there for a few hours. And they realized they have no water, no food, and they need to get moving. Otherwise, they're just going to mm. stay there and die. So. They took a decision that I hope nobody would ever have to face that dilemma in their life. They took my uncle Sammy, they put him under that rock, they covered him with leaves, and they decided to go on without him, knowing that carrying a baby and running and ducking, he's either gonna die or he's gonna get them killed by his screams. So they left him there and they ran further towards Israel. And Miraculously, they passed the fire un unhindered. But after a few miles, 
walking and walking toward, back towards Jaffa, my grandmother collapsed and said, I'm sorry, I can't go on. I want my son back. Hopefully, there was no argument from my <laughs> grandfather's side. So they actually decided mm. to go back and get my uncle. And they went back. And luckily for them, the fire has been over by then. And they went to the same rock or cave or whatever it was. And they found the same squeaking baby <laughs> under the same rock, took him with them, and went down to Jaffa. And my grandfather made contact with his friends from the uh, Rutenberg Company, which, after Israel was established, became the Israeli Electricity Company. And his friends helped him settle back in Jaffa. And they also helped him get his old job back, making him one of the few Arabs to work at the Israeli Electricity Company. And the reason I'm studying, sitting here and talking mm -hmm. to you as an Israeli diplomat and not as a Palestinian refugee from Lebanon is because my grandfather and my grandmother had the courage to take a decision that was unthinkable to others. Rather than falling into despair that came mm -hmm. with the change of 48, they found hope where no one else dared looking for it. They came back to live among those who were considered to be their enemies and to make mm -hmm. them their friends. And Can I just ask very quickly, what does your Uncle Sammy make of this story? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's a nice story, but you know, it's a, there's that weird twist in there. You know, it's, uh, it's funny that my Uncle Sammy, just like the rest of us, doesn't really think it's a big deal, huh. this story. It's like, this is our story. What's the, what's, well, why, why is it a big deal? To be frank with you, I didn't think it's a big story until I told it and people reacted in a certain way until I realized the message, I mean, Facts are facts. The fact that they fled, <coughs> the fact that they did what they did, the fact that they came back, these are dry facts. But to, to come up with a moral story behind it right. is something that we never thought of doing until it just happened somehow. Mm. And now we kind of look back and say, yeah, yeah, actually it's a cool story <laughs> that we have. We didn't think about it before. What's the experience of your neighbors then? I mean, your, your neighbors you know, your and neighbors in Jaffa, I mean, yeah. the Arab neighbors especially, it was like, well, we never left, or we did, or what's there? If you're saying that your story never seemed exceptional, why? What, what's the, what are their stories? You know, the beautiful thing about uh, the Arabs in Israel, and in Jaffa in particular, is that those years, because they are a sort of a trauma, are not really discussed as in, huh. what did your family do, and what did you do, and what did his grandfather do? I don't know the story of other families, even <coughs> closer families in Jaffa. I just know who's here and who's not here. That's the right. facts that uh, we know. Uh, but I think a lot of it is exactly the same moral that I think that should be adopted about what we spoke before about the Middle East, is that the, our, our possibility to create a future of hope rather than a future of despair and hate that we're seeing now, is exactly doing but what could be inspired by the story of my or our families uh, in Jaffa. It is by looking forward rather than backwards. It is by breaking those chains of resentment and old grievances that keep us connected looking backwards and by building a future. And only by building a future, we can redeem our past. Looking at our future doesn't mean forget it, let's not talk right. about it, let's just ignore what happened. But it means let's first build 
a uh, life that is worth living, that our children will have a good life, a life that they deserve. And then from a place of confidence, from a place of inner power, then we can go back to the past and see a way how we can uh, 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 use it in a different manner or give it a different form. This is not something unique or that was not done before. Uh, my music teacher, in, 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 I went to the marching band of the Boy Scouts uh, of the uh, Arab Christian community in Jaffa. I, I actually started there at the age of seven until the age of, uh, until today actually every year I go back and I play with them. Play the, play, oh, okay. play the trumpet. I used to play the clarinet mm -hmm. as well, which I probably should have stuck on because now playing the trumpet here in D.C. with the neighbors is not really uh, <laughs> working very well. Uh, but when I studied music there, I had a music teacher who I would also call one of my best friends when I was 11. He was 80. And his name was Avraham Nov. And Avraham is a Holocaust survivor. The story of Avraham is that uh, he was born in Luxembourg and then they moved him to Germany. When the uh, Nazis uh, came, his mother gave him a, uh, a package before they put them on the train. They put all the kids in one line and uh, they put them on the trains to the concentration camps. So his, his mother gave him a package and told him, I'll be right back. I'm going to get some more stuff. She was supposed to get her luggage and come. Whatever happens, don't let anyone take this package from you. And she left him there and went to get her luggage. And then a Nazi officer or a soldier came and uh, he started taking all the belongings of the kids before they board the, the, the train. And when he got to Avraham, Avraham remembered uh, what his mother told him. So he held on and he refused to mm -hmm. let go. And the soldier started pulling it by force and the kid was screaming <laughs> and squeaking and hitting with his legs and making a huge scene. He refused to let go of that package. And then the officer, the Nazi officer came and said, what's the problem? And the soldier was kind of holding Avraham in the air by his package. And the officer asked, what's going on here? And the soldier came, well, this kid, he's not willing to let go of his package. I need to take mm -hmm. it. So he goes to him and he asks him, uh, hello, uh, little boy, what do you have inside there? They open the package and it's Avraham's violin. And he asks him, are you able to play the violin? He said, yes. So he asks him to play for him and he plays a German national song. And the Nazi officer is so impressed by this little <laughs> boy around the age of 10 at the time that he decides to take him with him. The rest of Abraham's family were all killed in the uh, gas to death in the war. Avram himself is the only survivor because that Nazi officer took him in to his home and throughout the war he, war he had him in his home playing, entertaining his guests whenever he had people coming over. And when the war was over, Avraham was left alone and he could have easily sat and wept and cried over his personal tragedy and his people's tragedy, but he didn't. He looked forward, he didn't look backwards. He came to Israel and together with his fellow uh, Jews, they built a country that is today leading the world in technology, medicine, agriculture and innovation. And they did that 
not by looking backwards and defining themselves as the victims of, but rather defining themselves as the agents of hope and responsibility that would create a new future for the Jewish people. And this is the success story of the Jewish people, how they have risen out of their greatest tragedy to create a future of hope in their homeland and the land of their fathers for the first time after thousands of years. If there's anything I and my family uh, resonate with is that just like Abraham built a future for himself out of his tragedy, my grandfather, knowingly or unknowingly, has built a future of hope for my family by his decision to come back and have a family that is today one of the most educated families we, I have. We have diplomats and we have lawyers and we have accountants and we have professors in universities and engineers and what have you in my family. It is because we decided to look forward. It is because we decided to build a future of hope rather to be, remain captive in the chains of resentment. And this is the message that I think the Middle East uh, can learn something in these days and create a new story for itself. Can learn it from Israel, can learn how hard is that? I mean, if, because if it's hard to, if you have two irreconcilable movements, right, or two different ideas about what it means, like how do people look to Israel as an example? And that when say, well, yeah. I don't care who they are, but it's still, an, I mean, because in some ways, what you're talking about is it's a moving and compelling story, right? I mean, you actually have, a, you're a repository of interesting and moving stories. And so that's one of the things that you're saying, looking at Israel in the same way. How do people uh, put a lot of other things aside and say, okay, that's a good story. I actually like that. Uh, Israel is a problem for the Middle East but a good one in two ways. I guess that's what you asked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. First way is that in a place that is rejecting, persecuting, and expelling anyone who is different, any kind of minority, either on a religious basis, on an ethnic basis, or even on a sexual orientation basis, Israel is the only minority with both the will and the capability to say, yes, we are different, yes, we are Jewish, yeah. no, we're not Muslim nor Arab, and yes, our hand will always be out there reaching for peace, but no, we will not go away just because you don't yeah. want us to be here. No, we will not go away because you have a problem accepting people who are different. And it's the only minority that has the capability, including the military yeah. capability, to stand behind that statement. Yeah. And that poses a real challenge for the Arab world. Everyone else, the Christians, the Yazidis, the Kurds, the gays, the women, everyone else that is being persecuted has to accept the rules of the game or get out. Right. Israel does not accept the rules of the game. And that is the first challenge hmm. that the Middle East is facing when looking at Israel. The second challenge is precisely that point. And before I do it, just a small introduction to, under, to explain it. In the Western world, we have this idea that tolerance comes out from, is a derivation of our similarity. We are all human beings. We are all the same. We have so much in common. Right, our shared humanity. Our shared humanity. Right. 
and therefore we should tolerate each other. In a way, it's embodied. My, I always use this example because it's the perfect one. It's probably the anthem of Western humanity. It's imagined by John uh -huh. Lennon. Imagine a world with no countries, no religions, uh, all the people living for, uh, for uh, today. Or, <laughs> and it's a beautiful song. It's one of my favorite songs. But in a place like the Middle East that is so religious, a song, a, 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 uh, a theory that only talks about our similarity cannot work because we are similar. We are the same. We're all human beings. But it's only a small layer of who we are. We have so much mm. more into us to make us who we are than it's more, it's more than just that layer of what makes us in common. And Israel poses the second challenge to the Middle East precisely because it is an experiment, first of its kind in the history, where we are trying to create a new kind of morality based not on what makes us similar, but on what makes mm. us different. Meaning, I will tolerate you and I will respect you, not because you are like me, ah. but precisely because you are different. Because I'm different too, and you are different. And I'm proud of my difference, and I love who I am, and I love my heritage and my culture and my religion, and I'm passionate about ah. my history. But at the same time, because of that, not despite that, I have deep respect and tolerance towards right. you. My tolerance towards you does not derive from the fact that we are the same. Right. We are the same. But my tolerance towards you becomes much more profound precisely because we are not the same. Precisely because your identity is very much different than mine. And it is out of respect to who I right. am that I respect who you are because only by being who only we can be, we can contribute what only we can contribute. And that morality in Israel, being a Jewish state, and yet despite it being a Jewish state, I would say because of it being a Jewish state, so many minorities <coughs> live within it. It's the only place in the Middle East where Christians like me can wear a cross without fear, mm. where Muslims can build minarets to their mosques, which is not allowed in Switzerland, or wear hijab, in public places which is not allowed mm. in France. It is the only place where the Baha'is decided to build their dazzling temple in mm. Haifa, where Druze and Cherkessians feel so safe and so included that they serve in the army and feel Israelis in all their body and soul. It is precisely because Israel is defined as being different, as being a Jewish country, it is precisely because of that it is <coughs> able to tolerate the difference of others within it. And it's not without challenges this experiment that we're having in Israel. If we're, you're looking at what's happening in the last few weeks, inside Israel, when you see Jews boycotting Arab businesses because they think all Arabs support terrorism, when you see Arabs throwing stones at cars of Jews, when you see, I mean, the irony of hatred when a Jew stabs another Jew because he thought he was Arab, or when an Arab throws a stone uh, at another car, thinking it was driven by Jews, mm -hmm. turning out it was driven by a Palestinian who actually worked for UNRWA in Gaza uh, and injuring him. The irony of hatred, it, it's as if to prove that at the end of the day, hate will destroy the hater. And we have a responsibility in Israel not to give up on our 
will and power to create that narrative that out of our difference, it doesn't make us less tolerant, but on mm -hmm. the contrary, it makes us more compassionate and more understanding towards others. Out of our difference, not just from out of our similarity, if we do that, I think we are able to present an example, not just to the Arab world, who, who has a lot of pride of who he oh. is, but uh, also a lot of rejection to anyone else, but I think also to the Western world, well, which has the opposite problem this of, is, this is we are willing right. to accept everyone else, but we have a problem with ourselves. This is what I was gonna ask, um, to move away from the Middle East a little bit, and your experience as a diplomat, particularly in Norway. Um, look, uh, I mean, convincing people of that idea about Israel, you know, what you so elegantly just said, this is very hard for the Europeans apparently to understand why. And will, will the Europeans come to the conclusion that, well, okay, George is right, the Israelis are right, the Israelis have an interesting, they have an interesting thing going on. Why is it so hard for the Europeans? And in particular, if you would talk a little about your experience in Norway. You know, when I was in Norway, I, uh, before I went to Norway, I was preparing for my posting. And I saw an interesting thing. I was preparing for my posting there the same way I prepared for Nigeria or other places, reading reports and understanding how the economy works and how the cultural life in Norway works, try to see how we can build bridges between our countries. But then I went to Israel and I met with uh, people who are considered to be experts for Scandinavia or for Norway. And all they could talk about is how a horrible country Norway is, how hostile and how much <laughs> It hates Israel, it hates the Jews. And all I could think to myself, ah, oh, these paranoid <laughs> Jews all over again seeing anti-Semitism in every corner of the world. And when I got to Norway, I, I realized that I was right, but also they were right at the same time. I was right because there were indeed so many possibilities to build bridges in economy and culture, and even between politicians and political movements. In fact, it was just the time that we discovered in Israel a lot of gas offshore with Tamar and Leviathan. And Norway is one of the leading powers in the world in the oil and gas industry. So we were able to build a lot of cooperations on the economic level between our two countries. And I'm proud to say, it's one of my prides, that in 2014, the year I finished my last year in Norway, the trade level between Israel and Norway was the highest in history. Never before we had so many either cultural or economic exchanges behind the uh, between the countries. At the same time, I could see that uh, there's a lot of hostility towards Israel simultaneously. 38% of Norwegians believe that uh, Israel is treating the Palestinians the same way uh, the Nazis treated the Jews. There were riots in 2009 when Israel had an operation in uh, Gaza in which anyone who's Jewish was attacked in the street. Our embassy, I wasn't there yet, but it was my office, was hit by stones and completely uh, um, vandalized. The police stood helpless, not knowing what to do. And, and you could see a lot of hostility, even in the polls that we've seen with regard to Israel. So how do you create how do you explain this asymmetry between growing bilateral relations and the growing emotional mm. distance between the two countries? 
I think people in Oray are on the one hand able to see that Israel has a lot to offer and to contribute and Israelis are willing to see that Norwegians have a lot to offer and contribute as well and there's a lot of room for exchange of information or, or work. But at the same time what struck me is the way Israel is perceived in the Norwegian slash European um, perspective. And that is if we spoke before about how the Arab world does not see Israel as a national movement huh. of the Jews. In many ways, it is similar in Europe. Israel, you would hear a lot the narrative of um, we did horrible things to the Jewish people. We are deeply responsible for making sure that they are safe and they are well. And therefore, we have given them this land in Palestine <laughs> where they can live free and safe and, and this is why Israel is important as a safe haven for the Jews where they can be safe from persecution, safe from hatred and to build their own life there. Now, the problem with this narrative is that rather than recognizing Israel's uh, legitimacy as a national movement of a people, it, connects it, it makes it a project of European guilt. It makes mm. it a project of we Europe with our graciousness we have given you following the horrible things we have done this land and therefore it is right that is a derivation is, is a country that is a result not of a national right but rather a result of compassion and when I give you the right out of my compassion it is always conditional the right for Nor of Norwegians for Norway or of Palestinians for Palestine or Jordanians for Jordan is natural one, regardless yeah. of what you do. I mean, if you want to condition people's uh, rights to have a country, I think Germany would ha not have the right to be a country <laughs> these days. But it is a natural right because it's a native people. This is their land. But if your country, like Israel in the Norwegian story, is a result of compassion, it is always conditional. It is conditional to the fact that just like I showed compassion towards you, you have to show compassion towards others. And if you fail, to show compassion or what I perceive as mm -hmm. compassion towards others, then I, in a reverse move, will not be obliged to show any more compassion towards yeah. you and therefore your right to be there or to act in a certain <laughs> way is taken away from you. Uh -huh. And I think this is exactly a... Or Did you explain this to them? Did you say, it's actually none of your business or it's, it's your business but it's not about you? It's a separate, it's a national movement. Do you know how many times, you know how many times, a lot of people talk about what is being written about Israel in the media and how biased it is, etc. But it's not about what people write. Just look at the numbers about how much they write. Even if right. everything they write is wonderful, <laughs> Israel being heaven on earth. Israel was mentioned in the Norwegian media in 2014, 2,974 <laughs> times. <laughs> That's almost three, uh, sorry, 3,974 <laughs> times. Palestinians were mentioned 1,400 times. Mm. Iran was mentioned 1,300 times, out of which only 127 times related to its nuclear project. So you're saying Israel is a better project. Yazidis, uh, Boko Haram was mentioned 314, and the Yazidis 67. Exact numbers in the printed national press of Norway. So it's not even about what you write. It's about this fixation or the obsession of writing about Israel. With all due respect, the number of people uh, who 
in 2014 who, uh, who were um, affected by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in 2014 was, I think, less than 20 people. Uh, no, sorry, that in, that's the year that we had the Gaza operation. Let's say a certain amount of people, which is less than 10% of the people who died in Syria or other places at the time. The fixation is exactly because Israel is our project and it is a result of our compassion. Therefore, we have a duty to monitor our project and to make sure it's not misbehaving. And that creates the uh, fixation. Now, to, to tell it, to, uh, and, and then the fixation kicks in where you have moral judgment that says, um, we, since we're judging your compassion, that uh, somehow we're always going to find a way to be disappointed with our project and so how you're not showing compassion mm -hmm. towards others. We, we live in different realities and we reach different conclusions. I mean, the Europe is tearing down walls, at least until a few months ago when the refugee yeah, uh, right. crisis started. Uh, Israel is building walls. Uh, Europe is uh, cooperating with its region, like the European Union, etc. Israel has less and less cooperation with its region. <laughs> Norway believes in a certain kind of peace process and dialogue. Israel believes uh, that it is only out of military strength because the other side does not recognize your right to exist. Only then you can have a real negotiation where the other side is willing to make uh, significant compromises. We do have very different ways of looking at our realities, which are completely legitimate. It is the result of how we, um, of, of the neighborhood we live in, of our reality, of our circumstances. If Israeli circumstances will change, it might adopt a Norwegian perspective a bit more. And if Europe or Norway's reality would change, right. as it is changing, it might adopt more of Israeli approaches to, to things. Uh, but to how you say, do you tell, do you uh, talk to them about it and say, what, have you heard no. about something called the uh, invisible gorilla experiment? Hmm. Well. It's an experiment that was made in Harvard University in the 70s, where they took a group of students and they let them watch a TV, uh, a basketball game on TV, each one separately, between a team wearing white and a team wearing black. And... The, uh, the they told them in this experiment, they told the students, you're going to watch 10 minutes of basketball game. And your goal is to count the number of passes between the players of the white team. Nothing else <laughs> matters, not the score, not what happens. Just count the number of times the white team passes the ball from one player to another. And they did it. And Harvard students, being the bright students they are, over 90% of them were able to count the exact number of passes of the white team. However, that was not the experiment. The experiment was, <laughs> the second question was, and it was, did you notice anything unusual on your screen during the game? The unusual, uh, uh, only 30% saw something unusual. And the unusual thing was that in the middle of the game, a guy dressed up like a big gorilla <laughs> stepped in the middle of the court looked at the camera, did this, <laughs> and walked out. 30% saw it. And this is why it's called the invisible gorilla <laughs> experiment. And I think in many ways, this is an explanation to why people don't see things huh. when it comes to Israel. They only see certain things because they are so fixated on one narrative and on one story and on mm. one truth that they can only see that truth, and they're not able to see the big gorillas on their screen. 
what did they what did they make of you? Not just your story. What when you? Because we talked about this a little bit in the past. When the Norwegians, when some of the people you were working with, you know, I mean, during uh, you know during uh, Gaza during the Gaza campaign, and when you when you tell people, look, I'm 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 not Jewish. I'm Israel. I'm Arab. What did they? <laughs> you like, know, I came to Norway from Nigeria, and. In Nigeria, I, I wish sometimes I went first to Norway and then to Nigeria because I would have appreciated <laughs> being treated like a normal diplomat, like all <laughs> others, you know, from a normal. They don't care so much yeah. in Nigeria about they have their own issues yeah. uh, over there. Uh, and in Nigeria, I didn't really tell people who I am, not because I realized after the first two times that it's just too much information. <laughs> yeah. you know? You're, uh, so wait, you are Orthodox <laughs> Christian within the Arab minority in the Jewish state, in the Muslim <laughs> Middle East. Yeah. And so after a while, yeah. just, I'm the Israeli diplomat. <laughs> That's in Nigeria. But in Norway, um, I went there, and of course, people understood because they hear about it more. It's more in their, in, in their papers and in their uh, consciousness. But still, it was very confusing at times. I had, for example, a meeting in my one of, I think it was my second or third week there. And... Uh, I met with a prominent journalist in Norway, and he started telling me uh, that, uh, you know, we don't have a problem with Israel, etc. but, you know, you guys, the Jews, do not accept the Palestinians, and you, the Jews, uh, uh. do this, and you do that. And I was like, okay, okay, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I'm not Jewish. Said, what do you mean? So I said, <laughs> I'm an Arab. He said, oh, so you're an Arab? Israeli and said yes actually I'm an Arab Christian and then uh, so you're European or it was very hard for him to to understand that uh, reality and I actually had to explain to one of the top commentators in Norway what it means to be that Israel is not only Jews that actually Israel has Arabs and in those Arabs there are Muslims and Druze and Cherkessians and Christians and others uh, and <laughs> what, so it, it reflects the, the uh, point that people see the conflict as black and white it's a football game. Who's, it's the World Series. Who's your team? <laughs> yeah. Is it the, the, the white team or the black team, right. the red team or the green team? And you pick a team and you want it to win. And, you know, when I watch a game and I watch my favorite team uh, playing soccer, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint okay, you. Okay, we have that But when I see, uh, yeah, when I see, and, and I see something, a tackle taking place. Somehow I always jump when it's my team and I say, that's a foul. And whenever it's not my team, I say, oh, that wasn't a foul. And I truly believe in it because I have, a, I have an emotional um, connection to the game. So I always see how my side is right and the other side is wrong. And then the replay comes. But, but the point is that because they see this as a game where you have to pick sides, then eventually they will see the things that fit and they will ignore things d that distort that reality. Like, actually, there are Arabs who are Israelis, and not only they exist, but they're actually representing Israel as diplomats. And I think this is the kind of gorillas that you mm. should throw to people's screens to make them realize, wake up, it's not mm. the way you see things. Did it's that much more complex. Did that happen somewhat? I mean, when you were talking... And you were saying the leading commentator say, "Look, by the way, I'm 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 an Arab. I'm a, I'm a Christian." Yeah. So he's like, "Oh, okay, maybe I need to rethink some of my positions." Or it's like that. Okay, that, never mind. Let's get on to the important stuff. Nobody ever rethinks their positions publicly, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but 
I think it's true for everyone, not just for Norwegians, not even for Arabs or for Israelis. People want the truth, but more than they want the truth, they want a story. And when people grow up with a certain story about our conflict, about mm. who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, what is right and what is wrong, what is the real reason for what's happening and what is not the reason for what is happening, even if you throw gorillas to their screen, even if you show them all the truth that kind of contradicts what they've seen, it is very hard to change the perception of the conflict unless an alternative narrative, an alternative story that makes more sense derives. Our conflict is not any other conflict, unfortunately, in the eyes of people. People talk about Syria. Right. And I saw a lot of people at the beginning, they said, yeah, throw Assad out. And now they're saying, no, actually, Assad is the, the best option of what we have. People look at uh, China with Tibet or so, and they say, um, yeah, Tibet is bad, but, you know, I don't know enough to have an opinion. Our conflict is the only one where people have more opinions than facts about what's happening. But, and therefore, because our conflict has become a testing ground for morality, that people assert their beliefs according to our conflict. If you want to be, for example, a, uh, a very conservative evangelical Christian, you would mm. automatically take the Israeli side because you believe that supports your narrative about life. And if you perceive yourself as a left-wing, extreme left activist for freedoms and uh, liberties and uh, uh, against uh, na nationalism, etc., yeah. then you would assert yourself with the Palestinian side because it is the only conflict in the world that is that it is acceptable to use as a simplistic story to tell, oh, yeah. I am a left-wing activist, therefore I <laughs> must be on that side, or I am that kind of activist, a, a, a Christian activist, and therefore I'm on that side, for example. And you find some, but not a lot of people from the both ends that are willing to, to look at the facts rather than the story to make up their opinion. Uh, and I think that what I talked about in the beginning, the ability to create a moral narrative for Israel that is one of tolerance and openness and acceptance because we are different and not despite being different, is the narrative that is eventually going, if we are going to be in a good world in the future, it's the only narrative that can withhold the changes that we're going through. And therefore, I hope someday those people who stand for liberties and rights will realize that actually it's the other way around. What about, we can talk a little bit, I, I, I do want to see if there's going to be a, a question or two in a second, but right now I just want to ask you, what's your... What's your experience here in the United States? I know you haven't been here that long. You've been here for a few months. Um, but what's your sense? Both, I mean, if you want to talk about the academic milieu at Georgetown, because this is certainly a, another place, academia, American, Western academia generally, but where this conflict is also uh, argued about, where there's another testing ground. So do you have any thoughts on that over your last? Actually, I had... Um, as a uh, student in Georgetown, I had one experience that was quite significant uh, regarding the conflict. I took a class called Israel-Palestine Legal Issues. It's a legal course. I said, perfect, I need to 
learn about <laughs> the legal perspectives. I might know some, but I know them from a very specific angle. I know very specific things, and maybe I should be challenged and see to retest my grounds. And then I went to uh, the first class, and uh, it was funny because we were kind of uh, three groups in our class. Uh, there were people who came very passionate about the Palestinian cause. There were a group of mostly American students who are no opinion, you just come to learn and understand something they hear about but they don't know enough about. And then there was me, the third group. <laughs> and, and within that reality, I could see that the teacher was not very happy that I was there. Uh, when I presented myself and what <laughs> I did, she was telling me, oh, well, you know, you can... Uh, you probably already know this stuff, so there's really no <laughs> need for you to be in this class. Which, uh, yeah. But uh, there's other stories around that one specific class, like two hours where all of this happened. But I think the most, the one that is most important and connects to what we are talking about is that towards the end of the class, she started explaining about the UN partition plan in 1947. Uh, for those who don't know, the UN partition plan is before Israel was established, the UN came up with a plan that was endorsed by the United Nations saying that the land would be split between a Jewish state and an Arab state. The Jews accepted the plan and the Arabs rejected it and launched a uh, war of annihilation against Israel. Now, she asked us, why do you think the Arab side rejected the, uh, uh, the plan? And she answered, well, look at your maps. And she tried to make an argument that the Arab side rejected the plan because the, uh, the, the Jews got the better or the bigger land and the Arabs were unhappy with the size or shape or quality of the land that they were mm -hmm. given. Now, at this stage, I intervened. And, and I asked, I'm willing to accept <laughs> that this was the reality, but since this is an academic class, I know a lot of statements and facts that show that the Arab world, by the Arab world, that shows that they were not willing to accept Israel in any size. In, even if Israel was two neighborhoods in north of Tel Aviv, <laughs> they would still not be able to accept it. That's what they say because they rejected the acceptance of Israel as a Jewish entity in that region in any size or in any shape or in any border. And then she said, well, you know what they say in public is not always what they say in behind closed doors, in negotiations, etc. I said, fair enough. Is there any documentation <laughs> showing that, that behind closed doors, they were willing to uh, have uh, a compromise, that they were willing to accept? And I know that actually behind closed doors, they were even more extreme, if that's possible, <laughs> from what they said in public. And then, after a three minutes debate, she reluctantly uh, accepted my argument that it's, it's not, it, it's not because Israel was a certain size or shape. And I didn't even get to the shape and size because if you look at the map of 47, it was a horrible country, Israel, just negative the stri yeah. some strip of the beach and the Galilee, but it's irrelevant. That had nothing to do with why it was rejected. But what happened there? In order to support a narrative in which a colonial state of Israel is being delegitimized, she was willing to knit her own story and to the hell with the truth as long as people believe it. Mm. Out of American academia, out of any academia that is seeking, especially in a legal course, I would assume that academic quality 
and commitment to truth is the first and practically the only thing that should matter. And this connects to the issue of having an argument that its goal is to have to seek truth or to seek power. Right. Look, as an Israeli diplomat, as an Arab being an Israeli diplomat, I, I face a lot of criticism uh, within my community, within my people, and I welcome it. I don't know if I'm right in everything I say. I might be completely off track. I might be completely wrong. So I debate with people and I try to, and the goal is not to win the argument. The goal is to gain a better understanding and maybe learn something new when I argue with others. And this is the virtue of an argument for the sake of truth. Both sides win. You either win the argument or by losing it, you win a new truth or a new realization. Your views are being challenged. I think it was, uh, if anyone watched the series uh, Suits, Harvey Specter yeah. there, he says, yeah. I, I love this quote, he says, I never lose, I win or I learn. And this ah. is the virtue of an argument for the sake of truth, right. that both sides win. However, in an argument for the sake of power, both sides lose. You either lose your argument or if you win the argument by humiliating your opponent, by showing him that you are the powerful one and you will not let his opinions be le heard legitimately, by doing so, you also diminish something of yourself and you lose the possibility to be enlarged and learn something new. The academia is about seeking truth, not about seeking power. And therefore, I believe that as academics, teachers and students alike, we should be able to create space for opinions that challenge our own to be heard, as well as always protect the truth, even if it means sacrificing the narrative, mm. not the other way around. Um, I'm going to open it up for a question sure. or two and see if there's a question to do. Um, Doug, can you, um, we have a microphone up the back here. Thank you for that. I'm Doug Fife, a fellow here at Hudson. You described a, a culture of intolerance to, against different people who are different. I'd be interested in your reflections on Palestinian society as, on that issue as between the leaders and the public. I mean, is this a, is this a a, pr a problem of leadership that could be solved with a different leadership? I mean, I was struck by your comment that when Hamas uh, was encouraging, when, when Hamas was encouraging people to, um, to do the knifings, but restraining themselves in Gaza, you said they were losing popularity in Gaza, which suggests that, that the engine for extremist thinking is not necessarily the leadership, but the public. Anyway, I'd be interested in your reflections on uh, th this matter of, of who's driving yeah. the, the bad thinking. It's, uh, I think we see an evolution in who's behind the thinking. For example, the first Intifada in 87 was a genuine bottom-up uprising where it was the people 
who led the way. And it was a genuine, popular struggle of the Palestinian people to try and get more rights and freedom. That's why I think it resonated so well and created the rightful feelings of guilt and the Israeli side saying, okay, we've probably done something here that was not the right way, so let's see if we can change course. And that led to the period of the Oslo process, trying to resolve a conflict between two national movements or what was perceived by Israel as two national movements. Uh, the second intifada in the year 2000 was exactly, it was top-bottom. It was an intifada that was instigated uh, from the leadership to the people, and opposite of the first intifada. It was after Barak made the offer to the uh, Palestinian uh, leadership, to Arafat in uh, Taba, I think, at the time, Camp David. Um, it was then that they decided to, um, uh, to respond, and I'm not getting into right or wrong, but the response was the launching of, a second, of the second intifada, led by the leadership, supported by it, instigated by it, and uh, in, in, in many cases also provided the tools to carry out suicide attacks or other violent attacks by the leadership to the people. This current, uh, and then you have Hamas, which is an armed group by any category. It's not a people, it's not a leadership, it's just a bunch, of, it's not a bunch, it's a well-organized group of uh, soldiers that are willing to sacrifice practically everything in order to gain, uh, to redeem their dream of having a Palestine free of Israel, a Palestine free of Jews. The current situation that we live in is it's very hard uh, to, to convey about something that is not happening. But I don't think it's something that is supported by either the people or the leadership. If you look at the, uh, the leadership's reaction to it, Hamas is lauding it and applauding to the people going out and stabbing Jews, but at the same time is not doing anything in Gaza, launching rockets or any kind of violence against Israel. The Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is also calling them martyrs and supporting them as uh, heroes of the nation. But at the same time, if you read the news, you would see that the security services of the Palestinian Authority are clamping down quite heavily in order to reduce the tension and stop the violence. They pay lip service because, unfortunately, there hasn't been a leader uh, that has enough legitimacy and power in the Palestinian or Arab world, I would say, to say, guys, what the hell are you doing sending this 13-year-old boy or applauding to this 13-year-old boy who stole the, kitchen from his uh, the knife from his mother's kitchen, going out to kill Jews, destroying his life by either being killed, injured, or imprisoned, and the likelihood of two of the three. Something, I mean, this is not really anything heroic. This is not anything that will, that doesn't, it's not moral, and it also doesn't even serve the Palestinian cause. A lot of times you would hear people condemning terror, not because it's immoral, but they say, well, even if it is moral, then it doesn't serve us. So we should stop the terror because it doesn't serve our cause. While I think, like, it's just like saying that you should stop torture because it doesn't get you good information. You should stop torture because it's bad. You should stop terror because it's bad, not because it's not helpful for the cause. But regardless of that, uh, the leadership is, uh, there has not been a will yet 
to, uh, or the, the courage to stand out and say, this is not the way forward. The Palestinian Authority has been leading a way that I disagree with, but frankly, it was very uh, effective. Internationalize the conflict, count on the international communities uh, uh, kicking in to, uh, to stand against Israel. But, uh, and this is standing in the way, destroying their hopes or their strategy. But they just can't find the courage to say, no, guys, this is not good. But on, instead of that, they're encouraging it while physically clamping down against it. And I think at the end of the road, this will only erode the legitimacy, the credibility, and the power of the leadership. But at the same time, the people are not supporting this as well. Look at the numbers of how many Palestinians have actually taken part in the attacks on Israel. Not many. A few, maybe dozens at most. The Palestinian people at most stayed home. Even in the great days of rage in, on Fridays in the territories, at most you had a few thousands, rarely above 10,000 coming out and uh, demonstrating. At the same time, next to my home in Jaffa, Maccabi Tel Aviv versus Beitar Jerusalem, 30,000 people were watching a football game. The, the Palestinian people does not support this movement. But I think what is happening, and uh, I think what is happening is that those people who decided to do it, inspired by either uh, religious or political or both uh, ideologies, are trying to revive the narrative of resistance to say, no, it can't be that it's not mm. working. It can't be that we cannot drive the Jews away by making them fearful. It can't be. There's other reasons to it. The frustration, I, you know, uh, when Netanyahu speaks about Israel keeping the status quo in the Temple Mount, we tend to believe that this actually helps to calm the tension down because it reassures that there's no intention of changing anything. But it only makes things worse because it reminds the Palestinians and the Arabs who actually calls the shots, who decides if the status quo will or will not be changed. And that in itself is hard to grasp. Um, and, and, and that creates frustration. And there is also the issue of the occupation. I think the Palestinians have a lot of grievances that are just uh, the fact that uh, starting from the burning, the horrible burning of the Dawabsha family, which I think was one of the most horrendous crimes ever committed by an Israeli citizen, alongside Baruch Goldstein and what he did in, the, 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 uh, in Hebron. You have the uh, fact that there is uh, a growing price tag movement. The same people who went into the Arab Christian cemetery in Jaffa, when I was representing Israel in Norway, they went to our cemetery, and on my father's grave, they wrote, death to the Arabs. And these people are still not in jail. This is also mm -hmm. a factor. And you also have the other factors, which are, we just want to be frustrated about everything, about the occupation and the grievances, but also about the fact that Israel exists, and there's nothing we're succeeding to do about it. And we're kind of stuck. And out of this place of stuck, these people, I mean, you think someone who takes a knife and goes out believes that he's going to free Palestine, <coughs> that he's going to make a significant change of policy about the settlements? He goes there because he wants to be a hero. He wants to be a martyr because he was told that anyone who fights Jews is a hero regardless of why he does it and when and how. And 
When I saw yesterday in the news this, uh, the mother of one of the people who uh, stabbed, a, who was killed uh, after stabbing Israelis, and she, on Palestinian TV, on Al-Quds channel, she took out a knife out of and said, Israel, you opened the doors of hell, and I'm coming, and I'm going to sacrifice the rest of my three kids here to come against you. Where are the leaders to come out and say, lady, this is not the way. Palestine doesn't need you to die. Palestine needs you to live. Palestine needs you to build institutions, to build a future for your people, not to destroy other people's life, and by that, destroying your own life. That's a, a very moving, a very moving place, Dan. And I'm afraid we don't have time for any more questions. Oh, but again, I want to. No, 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 George. I mean, it's been uh, it, it's been terrific having you, and um, and thank you all for coming, and uh, thanks again for Hudson. Thank you uh, for hosting us. Thanks very much, George.